You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 13th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. US aid to Ukraine clears one hurdle. A greater obstacle remains. France unmasks a vast network of Russian disinformation outlets and is a home-delivered pizza, now the romantic equivalent of a horse's head in the bed. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Robin Lustig will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from the historian Tripadaman Singh about his new book recalling the constitutional rewrite that has defined India's path since independence. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by the journalist and broadcaster and former presenter of The World Tonight on Radio 4, Robin Lustig, and by the historian, author and screenwriter, Alex von Tunzelman. Hello to you both. Hello. Um, Alex, as regular listeners will be aware, you do run this thing in Morocco where you teach people how to write books and welcome them into the vast, glittering vault of riches that is <laughs> is, is life as the public author. Um, public? Published author. Both mm. of those things. Uh, but you are going to Morocco to do that imminently. Yes, yes, we're off in a week. We've got two back-to-back masterclasses with uh, the author Clove Stroud and the author Monica Ali. Um, and I'm afraid they're completely sold out, but uh, they should be lots of fun. But there's always next year. There's always next year. This is the only way you can make a living writing books now, isn't it? Just teaching other people how to write books. I mean, it's pretty helpful. But yes, it also <laughs> does. I think it's, it's kind of really fun to do. I think there's something about allowing people space to be creative, which a lot of people don't get to do in their lives, which actually is really quite liberating and lovely. Do you ever get people coming to these things saying what I would really like is one-on-one interaction with somebody who can impart expertise in how to write obtuse historiographies of Australian rules football? It's funny you should say that, Andrew. I was just going to give you a call. Amazing. Pencil me in for next year. Um, Robin, you are not going to Morocco, but you are, in fact, going to Italy. I am. I booked a holiday in Italy. Italy is my favourite country, and I didn't go at all last year, and I've been pining for it. So I've booked a holiday in Italy, in a part of northern Italy, which I don't actually know, around Verona. Um, of Shakespearean fame, among others, of course. But I'm fascinated by what Alex is doing because I just went to see a film called American Fiction the other Mm. day, which taught me everything I need to know about how to write a novel. If you think (laughs) of the worst possible idea, write it and make a fortune. I wish we'd all thought of that. Um, It's a lot cheaper than coming to my classes. I I, I am myself a big fan of Italy, uh, Robin, but I do want to talk about it a bit further because we have a sort of Italy-adjacent item later in the show. Are you intending to eat a lot of pizza, he said, foreshadowingly. Yeah, cliche-ridden presenter that he is. Do you know, I was a correspondent in Italy for four years, many years ago, and I discovered that if I put the word pizza or fiat into a story, or mafia, actually, I would get the story published. Anything else, forget it. People love their stereotypes. They do indeed. Well, we will have more from you both shortly, but we will start in the United States, where a $95 billion foreign aid package has cleared the Senate with decent bipartisan support. It includes $60 billion worth of aid for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel. It is not a done deal yet. House of Representatives Speaker Mike Johnson has hinted that he may seek to block it.
it. We are joined now in the studio by Monocle's US editor, Chris Lord, who is here. Um, Chris, um, this seems like a fairly straightforward thing for a US Congress, whoever was running it, to pass. Um, aid for Israel and a country defending itself from Russia. How and why has this become actually contentious? So let's look at the structure of the bill itself. I mean, you're right. Yes, this does include a substantial chunk of which goes to Ukraine. It's also a bill that includes money to go to Israel and also money that ultimately will go to Taiwan to defend itself. So three incredibly different theatres of potential conflict or conflict with also very different constituents who care about it and have a a Mm. belief about whether that money should go or not. So that's, first of all, the structure that makes it extremely contentious, I think. I think that roll together structure also is made even more important, I think, with the fact that this is a pivotal moment for America's role in the world. And I think that despite lots of the opposition to this in the lead up to the to the to the actual vote, I think, you know, when Mitt Romney comes out, and as much as he doesn't necessarily represent so much of the Republican Party these days, but when he comes out and says this actual bill and how we vote on it has some bearing ultimately about what America stands for in the world and whether it can actually sort of hold its head up in the world and so on, he is actually kind of right. There is a sort of moment here, I think, where, if you will, America's sort of vision of how it arbits certain you know how it's an arbiter over certain parts of the world is actually being called into question here and i think that no 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 reason you know the the reason for their for their sort of contentiousness is that that, that sort of gravity is recognized but i think quite simply you know lots of republicans see lots of money going overseas that they don't think should do and as i travel around america frankly i speak to lots of americans who don't understand why this money is going overseas they just simply don't and the case in my opinion the case has simply not been made very clear to them for whatever reason that might be about why it's important that america sends this forget america first and all that ideological stuff i just mean on a very basic level they see cost of living rising ex- you know, extremely, even though America's economy in many ways is doing very well, but the cost of living rises. And then they see $95.3 billion about to be shipped overseas to a war that, frankly, many of them don't understand. And just briefly, Andrew, you know, has been complicated even more in the past few weeks by the Tucker Carlson arrival in, in the Kremlin to then say, is actually it right that America is backing up somebody who maybe main people say is not right for the job. I mean, it may be part of the failure to explain it, but it is important to emphasise that this money is not going to be chucked out of the back of an aircraft flying over Ukraine. This is money that is going to be spent uh, in mostly in America uh, as the United States military ships ammunition and equipment, which was nudging its expiration date to Ukraine and backfills it with this new stuff that this money will buy. But is the problem here not so much, Chris, and this is what where I think we, we talk about Speaker Johnson's threat to uphold it. Uh, sorry, not uphold, the other thing, upend. Up, you know what I'm saying. All of those things. Um, it's not so much about the case that is being made as who is making the case. The people that he knows he is playing to would object to anything Joe Biden suggested. Uh, and by the same token, if Donald Trump stood up and said, you know what we should do is tool up Ukraine, they'd be all for it. I think, look, I, I think we have to be clear here that the influence of of Trump and the people who really very much throw their lot in with him cannot be denied in how this conversation in the last few weeks has done. The Senate is a different beast from the House Republicans. Mm. Obviously, this bill now will go to the House and the bill is 
frankly, a lot more magnified than than the Senate is in terms of you have Republicans in there who really do, you know, 60 of them quite recently voted to say that, you know, Trump should be completely taken out of any association with the insurrection on January the 6th and so on. That You know, that, that is going into a, a an arena which is much more sympathetic to his cause. I think just to come back to what, what we've seen, I think, in the Senate in the last few days, I, I just simply think... When Rand Paul comes out and says this bill is a middle finger to every working man and woman in America, right now, that is such a powerful card to play because working people in America simply feel poorer. Even though, and you know, we just you know you just made the great point, Andrew, that the you know the communication around this thing hasn't been good. People aren't clear what it's for. Aren't even clear where the money ultimately will be spent with American defense companies inevitably. But also, I think that. <laughs> The simply the the view of where America is at is not getting through to the constituents who they need to please. And so it's very easy for those Republicans who want to make this an incredibly powerful chip to chip away at Biden. It's a very easy one to do. And I think they just the, the opportunity has not been lost on them, even if they see the fundamental responsibility to get this through. I, I just want to bring our panel on this panel in on this. Um, Alex, several of your books have touched on in one way or another American leadership in the wider world. Do do you buy this analysis that this is a pivotal moment at which we're going to figure out what America does actually stand for in 2024? Well, it's more a case of me having flashbacks, to be honest, because every single time in US history that I've studied foreign aid bills have come up, there's actually been a really similar reaction. I mean, I think, you know, America, obviously the United States, has always felt somewhat isolated from the rest of the world. I think it's always been hard to justify to the working man in, you know, Minneapolis or Missouri or anywhere else uh, why these sorts of sums of money are going abroad. Um, And actually, there really have been senators. I remember one in the 1960s who... um, I won't quote directly because he was quite rude, but he said basically, "I live to kick the stuffing, should we say, out <laughs> of uh, foreign aid bills." That's you know, that, and that was that was the attitude in the Cold War. It was the attitude if you go back to the 1930s. It always has been. So I think this is always an uphill battle in the U.S. for presidents and administrations who do see a global picture to somehow communicate that back to um, politicians and to constituents um, back home. It's always been difficult. I think just, and I totally agree with Alex, I think the one that this, this in a sense, feels quite, feels even more charged than usual because things are faltering in Ukraine. Things are running, they are running out of oomph and money to keep this thing going. And I think that if that money were not to, were not to be actioned, Ukraine would find itself in an incredibly hot situation. Uh, Robin, just a a final quick thought on this. Um, Is is part of the problem that it just seems indecorous for a president of the United States to stand up in front of the American people and say, look, the fundamental thing here is that somebody else is smashing up Russia's army for us, and this is an absolute bargain. The problem, I think, is, is what Alex put her finger on. There, There is a historic isolationist trend in American politics, which runs back a long way. I mean, anybody who knows anything about the debates which preceded America's entry into the Second World War will know mm-hmm. what a huge struggle that was to persuade Americans that this was something that America needs to do. The argument that I don't think is sufficiently made in America is that over the last hundred years or so, it eventually was accepted that it's in America's interests that Europe should be stable and at peace. And that's partly what the Ukraine debate is about. But you now have a demagogue populist 
symbolic political leader in Donald Trump, who is very happy to personalize the isolationist argument in the US with great success. He has said now, ever since he entered politics, it's nothing to do with us. And if these guys can't pay what it takes to defend themselves, then why the heck should we? And that is a very well-established old historic argument in US politics, and we're seeing it resurrected now. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle Radio. Chris Lord, thank you very much for joining us. We will be back right after this. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Alex von Tunzelman and Robin Lustig. And to further illustration now of the staggering quantities of its own resources and everybody else's time that Russia insists on wasting in preference to making more constructive use of its vast natural and human resources. French spooks claim to have identified a huge network of Russian disinformation. At least 193 sites dedicated to blitzing social media by relaying defences of Russia's absurd rampage in Ukraine, criticism of Ukraine's government and miscellaneous nonsense agitprop designed to sow bewilderment ahead of crucial elections throughout the democratic world. Um, Robin, the the network has been given the name Portal Combat. Um, Are you even slightly surprised to discover that such a thing exists? No, I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) I I I thought you might say something of that sort, Robin. Anybody who's been following this uh, over several years now has known that the Russians have been putting immense effort into running disinformation campaigns in a whole variety of European countries, particularly at election time uh, in the UK. We have seen it, I think, in part over the Brexit debate. Um, The leading pro-Brexit figure, Nigel Farage, and some of the people who backed him financially had links to Russia. We've seen it in France with Russian support for Marine Le Pen. We've seen it in the US, of course, with established Russian uh, interference in the last presidential election campaign. I'm sure we'll see it again. Uh, What's interesting is that the French are now sort of going public with this. Mm. Uh, Until quite recently, it was regarded as a rather embarrassing secret because no um, secret services want to admit that they hadn't really been able to keep a handle on what Russia was doing. I think they're now prepared to go public and say, this is happening, we know it's happening, and it is actually on a scale which really should worry people. Alex, the outfit which has made this announcement is uh, called Viginum. Um, It's a dedicated foreign disinformation watchdog run by under the aegis of the French state. Um, Is this something that more governments need to start thinking more seriously about? Oh, for sure. But I think a lot of them are taking it quite seriously already, to be fair. I mean, I think it's, you know, as Robin says, this is not news, really, in the sense it's been going on for a very long time. Um, It is, of course, ramping up. I mean, there's kind of no downside for the Russians in doing this. You know, they can, um, you know, they can spend an awful lot of time and money um, kind of pursuing these campaigns. And I mean, you know, we know also that but in they Russia... They don't even have to spend that much money. This, yeah, co- no, this costs even. absolute billions. It's actually pretty cheap. Yeah. And I mean, at the same time, of course, you can have criminal networks, hacking organisations, all of this stuff based in Russia. Um, I mean, the only thing that's kind of expensive are servers, but actually Russia doesn't really have a shortage of electricity, so that's not a big problem for them either. I mean, it's, it's not... It's very cheap to do, really. Um, but they can, you know, it, it's... 
And of course, it doesn't involve, you know, where, of course, um, the kind of old school spy games, of course, required great amounts of risk and putting your people in the field and all of this. I mean, you can just do all of this from a bank of services in Petersburg. It's incredibly low risk, really. So I think they are carrying on and uh, ramping it up. I did appreciate the French calling this portal combat as a child of the 90s. That was that was a reference I thought was delightfully dated. Um, I don't know if you had a character you played, Andrew? Uh, not regularly, no. Did you, did you? Did right. you? I played Raiden. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but uh, no, I, I, um, I think, you know, it, it's something that actually anyone who's now not taking this seriously is missing the point. I mean, it's... It's here to stay and there's no real way of stopping it apart from to educate people. I mean, this is something as a historian that I spend a lot of time um, banging on about, I'm afraid, is that actually the only way to cope with the modern world, funnily enough, the much ridiculed media studies, is to teach critical thinking. Uh, You simply can't stop the kind of stuff. As I think I may have said before once or twice from behind this microphone, media studies is one of those things that I have gone full 180 degrees on. I think I used to to have somewhat boomerish views of this absolute dos uh, that people... People undertook as opposed to doing any real work. And now I'm not sure there's actually anything more important we could be teaching people. <laughs> um, another thing I have said more than once from behind this microphone, Robin, is that social media platforms, uh, which are being used as the conduit for disinformation, are still being given far too much leeway by governments. Uh, is it clear to you why more governments are not saying in extremely clear terms to social media platforms, either you get hold of this or we will get hold of you? I think it's partly to do with confusion and ignorance. I think too many governments simply don't understand how algorithms work and how social media platforms work. I think also they are bamboozled by figures like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, who just seem to them so much larger than life and certainly so much wealthier that they really don't know what to do about them. It seems to me that the danger of... threaten to make them a lot less wealthy. Well, they could do, but, but, but no government likes saying that it's against wealth because they will want to be wealthier themselves, <laughs> don't they? Um, no, but what really worries me about the, the, the sort of thing that Russia is doing is that it sows confusion. And a country which is confused is a weaker country. And the more weaker countries there are in Europe, the happier President Putin will be. So he doesn't really mind whether or not people believe the stuff that his people are are pumping out. All he wants to do is to confuse people so they no longer know what they should believe, what's true, what isn't true. That is a victory for him if he manages to get to that point. Yeah, well, this is always the the thing, and it's one of the reasons it is so difficult to combat, Alex, is that Russian disinformation is not as Russian disinformation of the Cold War might have been. It's not aimed at persuading people to believe any one thing. It's persuading people that they can't believe anything. Uh, that being the case... Do we need to, and I'm sure work is being done in that department, or at least I hope it is, but does the West again need to be more aggressive and old school in the information campaigns it runs for a Russian audience? Well, I think it's got to be smart about it. I mean, the problem is you're dealing with a Russian audience that has a pretty strong domestic kind of information network um, and is very specifically primed not to trust things it hears from overseas. So that's quite hard, actually, to get around. Um, And I think it's a shame, really, that um, we're at a time where services like the BBC World Service have been cut back and back and back, which Mm -hmm. actually were somewhat trusted and, you know, had a sort of role to play in particularly in sort of resistance and somewhat underground movements in the past. 
Unfortunately, as I say, we've seen that cut back to the bone because rather, as we were saying in the item earlier, Britain also has a general antipathy towards money spent abroad and foreign aid. And um, and that comes under that general umbrella now, too. Is, is the eternal problem here, Robin? I don't really know what we do about this. People have been trying to for as long as there have been people that people believe kind of what they wish to believe. Yeah, they believe anything which uh, confirms what they already believed in the first place. Uh, and it is a very difficult uh, phenomenon to deal with for any democratic government which believes in objective truth and believes in trying to have a media which tells people what is going on rather than what isn't going on. Uh, It's a serious problem. I don't think it's easy to confront, but I do think it has to be confronted. Well, let's move along. And the numbers are in for Sunday night Super Bowl, in which the Kansas City Chiefs defeated the San Francisco 49ers in overtime. It may have been the most watched television broadcast in US history, edging out Neil Armstrong's giant leap in 1969. Across all platforms, at least 200 million Americans, comfortably more than half the population, watched at least some of the game and tens of millions more around the world. The spectacular numbers, accompanied by a couple of more old-school recent televisual successes, reportedly has a few excitable outlets frantically pitching to their advertisers that linear television is back. Alex, did you stay up all night to watch the Super Bowl? I somehow managed to resist the lure, but I would say this year the Super Bowl, of course, had an added element of Taylor Swift. It did, and political conspiracy theories. That was—I the, enjoyed the political conspiracy theories. As did I. They mm. were rather confusing, weren't they? The idea was that it was um, rigged. Yes, obviously. So Taylor Swift's boyfriend's team was going to win. Yes, then something and they did. unknown was going to happen, and somehow Joe Biden benefits. Well, that wasn't that. The unknown part may still have happened, but oh. ob- obviously the Chiefs winning with Taylor Swift watching was a key part of the plan, which will ultimately end with the American population being herded into gulags and forced into gay marriages. Uh, but going back to the game itself, Robin, uh, why did you think the 49ers secondary? looked so flat-footed when the Chiefs ran Rashi Rice and Richie James as the crossers in a mesh play on third and six in overtime. Well, I, I, as you can imagine, Andrew, I could bore you rigid with my, <laughs> my theories on this, but I'll, I'll spare your listeners. Um, I haven't a clue what you're talking about. You weren't watching, were you? I wasn't watching. Mm. Um, but they, there is this idea now at large, Robin, that the, the unifying TV event is back, but it's not really, is it? What it, no. What's actually happening is that lots of people watch the Super Bowl. Uh, of the top ten US broadcasts ever, nine of them have been Super Bowls and the other one was the moon landing. Yeah, there is one sporting event that persuades people to watch live linear television and for the rest of the time they are watching streaming services or or, or whatever else. No, I think linear television is now a, a, a dying art. It's not an art form, is it? it's a platform, a way in which people consume content, to use that horrible phrase. But no, I mean, I'm delighted that advertisers spent huge amounts of money um, to uh, get their message across during the Super Bowl. Uh, I'm delighted that lots of people enjoyed watching it. I saw a photograph of people watching it from a swimming pool uh, this morning, which seemed a very bizarre way of spending your time. But anyway, that's yeah. a long time to be in a swimming pool. They will be well shriveled they, once they get <laughs> out of that. Very wrinkly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's a bizarre phenomenon, but, um, you know, yeah, good good on them. Uh, but there have been one or two other things here in this country recently, Alex, which have got people excited about the idea of linear television again. There was a reality series called The Traitors, which I 
To which I took broadly the same attitude that both of you two seem to have to the Super Bowl, i.e., well, good luck to everybody who's enjoying this, but not really my thing. But it was a thing that I know lots of people I know, indeed, here at Monocle watched, and they watched it when it went out, so they could be part of the discussion and part of the collective experience. And there was the recent ITV dramatisation of the post office scandal, which has occurred here in recent years. To international listeners, I can only commend that you look up at even the broad sketches of what went on. I promise you that it will absolutely boggle your minds. But that dramatisation, Mr Bates versus the post office, which was terrifically well done, I thought, did seem to have that similar unifying effect. It was a TV show that a large plurality of the population were talking about. Yes, I mean, both of those terribly successful. I also have to admit to having got completely addicted to the traitors. So like like many (laughs) monocle people, I'm afraid I was also there, largely obsessed with uh, Claudia Winkleman's knitwear. But, um, But yes, I mean, it's interesting to me in that I think I think there's a couple of things going on here. I actually don't think linear TV is completely dead, although I do think, of course, streaming has made huge strides. I mean, it's not to diminish that. The problem is there's a couple of things happening, the first of which is that streaming services are really in quite a lot of trouble now. Mm. So they've you know spent huge amounts of venture capital and so forth, made loads of shows. Now they're not making any more shows, really. They're really cutting back on that huge problem for those of us who are screenwriters and you know filmmakers and all this sort of thing. Um, and they're introducing many more ads. And that, of course, and they're putting their prices up. So these things are making streaming much less appealing. And at the same time, I think there's so much absolute, can I say, crap out Mm -hmm. there generally on channels, on the internet, everything. And it's getting worse and worse, not just with the aforementioned Russian disinformation and so forth, but actually with AI is filling up the world with just absolute nonsense. And I sort of think that's going to be quite interesting, whether that actually does push people back to a slightly more curated approach. I'm just very interested to see whether perhaps people will sort of have enough of the overwhelming noise and say, you know what, I think I'd just like to be told what to watch now. It's eight o'clock. The the other interesting thing, which I think the streaming services are waking up to, is that whereas five years or so ago, they believed that the sort of box set phenomenon was what everybody wanted, the opportunity to binge on eight or ten episodes of whatever it was back to back, they're now beginning to space things out again and uh, put online only one episode at a time, which is almost sort of imitating the old linear television idea. You've got to wait seven days for the next episode. which is going back to how things used to be. So it is quite interesting to see how they're trying to adapt the way in which they pump content out to to meet people's expectations. And I think one of the things with... the traitors, for example, is that they didn't put everything online at the same time. They made people wait, and that meant people talked about it, and they thought about it, and it entered the public consciousness. But just finally on this, Robin, and just quickly, because I think two of us here at this table can probably remember a period, I'm gallantly excusing you from this, Alex, when you, you did occasionally have to think about if there was something you desperately wanted to see. God, do I stay in and watch this, or should I go out? Do, do you ever, Robin, actually sit down and watch a TV show when it's actually on very very rarely um i do look at the tv listings simply out of force of habit Uh, and my wife and i say is there anything on tonight that we need to watch the answer almost certainly is no and then we go to one of the streaming platforms and you know watch whatever takes our fancy well now to valentine's day which is tomorrow and which is second only to christmas day as the year's most irritating jamboree of fatuous marketing by attention-seeking corporations among such this year is a well-known purveyor of stodgy glop 
served in a circle who we are not going to name because we are profoundly childish like that. Their big idea, which a grown adult got paid money to have, is the goodbye pie. This being a pizza served in a box adorned with a picture of a heart-shaped pizza split in two. The way it is supposed to work, at least as I understood it, I didn't look into it that deeply because I don't really care, is that one orders it for someone as some variety of compensation for binning them. Alex, if you think back in your life, and I'm sure, again, he said gallantly, (laughs) there have been few, to a moment of heartbreak, would you have felt better if you'd had a pizza? Well, actually, sort of, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I think As it Andrew might be pulls just, off his chair in surprise. Yes, I think it might be just what you need, actually. Although, I think... From, well, so, it's not you, it's me, here's a Napolitana. Yeah, yeah, well, you know what, maybe it's better than the person who dumped you, really. Maybe, maybe pizza oh, is in the cer- true love. In, in certain circumstances, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the only thing is, if it's a really bad breakup, you might want to sort of check for cyanide on the pizza, you know? <laughs> I mean, a little, what sort of toppings have you actually put on this? Yeah, well, this is what I was wondering, Robin. Would, would you entirely trust a pizza delivered in these circumstances? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. <laughs> what, what, what I absolutely can't get my head round is, is, is the marketing person who thought that way in which to promote a new product... They're almost certainly getting paid way more than I, any of I us know, are, Robin. I know. The way to promote this new product is to say to people, when you want to dump somebody, buy our product and send them one of these. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous idea I've heard of, and I'm very glad we're not mentioning the name of the company, which came up with the nonsense. I mean, you know, it is a very, very long time since, I'm pleased to say, since a relationship of mine ended. I'm about to celebrate my 44th wedding anniversary. Um, so, um, <laughs> don't I'm not, don't I, tempt uh, fate, Robin. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a pizza <laughs> Ask me again on the 45th. Uh, I think we're having pizza tonight. (laughs) No, but I've... What a daft idea. Um, Just finally on this then, and bringing it back to Ballantine... Ballantine's? That's a brand of whiskey. Valentine's Day. <laughs> it's a more enjoyable day. <laughs> it, 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 it would improve the day vastly. Uh, if they are listening, you know where to find me. Uh, but, but bringing it back to Valentine's Day um, and detaching the pizza accoutrement from this. There was recent polling done on this by YouGov, who we can mention because they're a reasonably straight up and down polling firm. Uh, They suggested, Alex, that 45% of people believe it is best to yank the plug on a sputtering relationship before Valentine's Day. But do you have a view on what the statute of limitations is? Like, how many days before or after Valentine's? I mean, what's the last point at which you can bail before you realise, okay, Valentine's Day is coming up, I've I suppose I've got to go through with that and then we'll work it out after that. I think once you're in February, you're in trouble. Mm. Because the thing is, you you have to sort of book a restaurant, you know, because they do book up, even in this cost of living crisis. You know, a couple of weeks before is sort of reasonable. And I think, you know... It is, to be fair, I actually don't think this is completely mercenary. I know people will say, oh, it's, you know, because you don't want to buy them a present. But to be honest, if you if it's really not going well, the thought of spending some romantic meal with somebody who it's really not going well with is pretty awful for everybody concerned. So I don't think it's bad necessarily to yank said plug. But I think I think you kind of want to get there before the end of Jan or or you're sort of already on the road, and then it's, it's very hard. It's a conversation hard. you don't really want to have. So, sweetheart, what are we doing for Valentine's Day? Ah, glad you are. <laughs> 
Well, I. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're up to, yeah, but uh, on that uh, upbeat, heartwarming note, Alex von Tunzelman and Robin Lustig, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, the question of where, when, and why India began to drift from the original idea of a liberal democratic republic into the quasi autocracy it has recently become has vexed many observers. A new book by the historian Tripadaman Singh pins it down to a fortnight and change in 1951. Sixteen Stormy Days, the story of the First Amendment to the Constitution of India, recalls the efforts of India's first Prime Minister, Yavalal Nehru, to dramatically rewrite the founding document he'd been so keen on barely a year earlier. I spoke to Tripadaman Singh earlier, and I began by asking him what Nehru decided he didn't like about the Constitution as it was. Things started to go very wrong in the sense that there were all of these ideas that he had. Three big ones, which was land reform, reservations, caste and community-based reservations for what are called in India backward castes. And then, of course, he was being raked across the coals in the press and the media for multiplicity of reasons. And he didn't like that very much either. And so for all of these things, the requisite legislation had fallen afoul of constitutional provisions. And so a shortcut essentially was just to change the constitution rather than try and rework any of that legislation. It is an interesting fork in the road because criticisms made, and especially amid the debate occasioned by the publication of your book in India, criticisms made of the First Amendment have suggested that this is where Nehru identified the government as the state and that it did pave the way for the semi-authoritarianism which has been a feature of Indian political life ever since. Do you think that's fair? That's 100% fair. This is very much a critical juncture. You reach a point where essentially the government is being asked to step up and prove that India is a liberal democracy, that these things, freedom of speech, the right to property, the right to freedom against discrimination, are not just empty words, but something that you you know really, really have to take seriously. And they don't quite measure up to it. So once that happens, once a precedent is created, it's very easy to continue down that road. So every step builds on the previous one, and this is very much the first. As the title suggests, there's this compressed period, the 16 stormy days in which this is argued over, uh, extremely passionately, as as your book depicts it. This is a, a row which consumes not just Indian politics, but the Indian media and the Indian nation. But it struck me that in 1950, deciding to stand up to Nehru of all people, that is no small ask. Who were the people who nevertheless decided Nehru must be stopped and we're going to try? It was quite a scattered opposition. So there's a wide range of people and they come from quite a divergent set of backgrounds. There's the unofficial leader of opposition, Shyam Prasad Mukherjee, who was a Hindu nationalist, the man who founded the forerunner to today's BJP. And then there was a figure called Acharya Kriplani, who had been Congress leader and Congress president during independence and partition, uh, who'd now become a dissident. And then there were, you know, some of these dissenting Congress figures, a gentleman named Professor K.K. Bhattacharya, a liberal figure named Hidenat Kunzru, and also some people from the left, these committed socialists who formed what was then called the Congress Socialist Party. So they really came from quite a divergent set of backgrounds. And even outside Parliament, you had quite a few figures drawn from the press, the media, the All India Newspaper Editors Conference, the Federation of the Indian Chambers of Commerce and Industry, a lot of large landholders and their own uh, unions and associations. So quite a large 
Well, not a particularly large set of people, but drawn from like quite a wide spectrum of backgrounds. But for all the diversity of that coalition that did take Nehru on during the 16 days, were they all against him and against the First Amendment for the same reason, essentially? Not entirely. I think they were they were all one when it came to the most fundamental of questions, and that was freedom of speech. So mm. everyone was against the curtailment of freedom of speech. There were slight differences when it came to questions about the right to property or questions about the right to freedom against discrimination. So there were some, obviously, who were in favor of affirmative action for backward castes, but were not entirely in agreement as to how the amendment sought to curtail the right to freedom against discrimination. Some were not okay with the extent to which the right to property was effectively being made inoperative. So there were minor differences, but on the big question of freedom of speech, you had quite a lot of unanimity. I mean, it's it's an obviously impossible question to answer, so I apologize to an extent for asking it. But as, as the book makes clear, this is a considerable fork in the road at a very, very early stage along the path to independence for India. Did you find yourself thinking as you put the book together, what would India be like now? How might it be different had Nehru decided, actually, let's just live with the constitution we've got and we'll figure it out? I do. I do. It's not really part of my remit, but I do. And I do think this is very much one of those real critical junctures. And it really establishes both a precedent, of course, a constitutional and legal precedent. But even otherwise, you know, as the first prime minister, he had as much of a blank slate as it is possible to have in politics. And he very much shaped what the expectations of strong prime minister with a big majority in parliament were what conventions future prime ministers would have to adhere to. And on those terms, I think it made a huge difference. It really was quite a big thing. And you see it even when it's reported on by the press across the globe. So, of course, it is an event in India, Mm. but it is reported on across the world. And all of the press, whether it's the newspapers in Britain or in America, almost uniformly critical. And everyone acknowledges that this is, you know, a kind of hinge point almost, that some a dike is being breached and it's going to be very difficult to to fill that again. I mean, did the original publication of the book in India uh, prompt any amount of debate around the First Amendment? And I, I'm also wondering if it was inferred as being in any way heretical, given that I know from my limited experience of India that independence uh, and that period, and quite understandably, is regarded as a, a moment of great triumph, and Nehru as a key figure in that is fairly well, near enough to universally acclaimed for his role. was it? Is that still a, a difficult subject? It's a very politically charged subject mm. because now that we have, for the first time, an openly anti-Nehruvian dispensation in power, there's been quite a vigorous debate both in academia and outside in the public sphere on Nehru's legacy and his role during the early years of Indian democracy. So, of course, you can't take away from the fact that he was a pivotal figure in the struggle for independence. He was the country's first prime minister, and he's left an indelible stamp on India. But there is now a very, very vigorous debate, and this book is very much part of it. So this was a part of Indian history that was very rarely spoken about. It hadn't really been addressed in historical writing either. This is the only book on the subject. And before this book came out, there was 
the First Amendment was not much of a talking point, but it very much is now, and it's very much part of this reassessment of Nehru's legacy. And I think we'll have to wait for historical judgment, but I do think the sort of unabashed adulation of Nehru that was par for the course for the last 50 years is no longer the case. That was Tripadaman Singh. His book, 16 Stormy Days, is in a bookstore near you now. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Alex von Tunzelman and Robin Lustig, also to Chris Lord. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard with editing assistance by Lily Austin. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. 